Welcome to Economic Frontiers from MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy. I'm Andre Fratkin, and today we'll be discussing the economics of patents and non-practicing entities, or as they're more affectionately known, patent trolls. Our guests are Lauren Cohen, professor of finance at Harvard Business School, and Scott Commoners, who wears many hats, but is most prominently a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. We will be discussing their research conducted with Umit Gurun of UT Dallas and John Golden of UT Austin. I just want to start off this conversation uh, by having one of you give me an overview of uh, why patents are important and what's at stake in designing the appropriate patent policy. Uh, sure. So this is Lauren. I'm happy to do it. And thanks for having us on, Andre. We're, we're excited to talk about this. Uh, of course. So, so look... Patents are really important. Uh, look, it, with it, here's how they fit into the broader uh, issue of property rights. So we often think about property rights as pretty simple things to define. So you can think about them. The classic example that's given are plots of land for farmers. And there, it's essentially very easy to define property rights and to kind of delineate them. We can put fences up around plots of land. And then we say, okay, this is farmer A's plot and this is farmer B's plot. And there's very little, uh, there's very little quibbling about whose plot of land is A and whose plot of land is B. Now the intellectual property space, is, which is property also, and so kind of modern societies have understood now that these property, uh, it's a little bit trickier because it's some amorphous space that yet we still have to delineate and define whose property is person A's and whose intellectual property is person B's. And so they've struggled with this a little bit and honestly you know, societies have dealt with this a little differently. The way we deal with it in the U.S. and now essentially everywhere in the world are through these property rights things called patents. Okay, and so these are essentially contracts that uh, give the owner of the property right the sole ability to commercialize the idea for some term, uh, it, and it's usually a fixed length of time. And so these things. Now, look, there there are some it. Issues about these being a little bit different across countries, or you can renegotiate and get it to be a little longer. But you can essentially think about that as, as just being a claim on the stream of cash flows that will be generated from this idea. Okay. So, so now, yeah. And so, yeah, so, so that, that makes perfect sense. So just as a clarifying question, how long do people usually have the rights to the cash flow from their patent? Right. So it's 20 years. Okay. In the U.S., and so that's a usual length of time, and it doesn't differ a huge amount internationally, but it's they're all around twenty years ish. Okay. Uh, and so, and the interesting, so then you have these property rights, and the interesting part about them is that in the U.S., like most property rights, there then any disputes about these property rights are adjudicated by courts, and so that's what makes the courts really important in this process. And so you could say, okay, that's fine, sounds good. So we need some organization that decides how to delineate that space, but then we're done, right? If that organization did their job, then we wouldn't have disputes. But of course, we do have disputes. And in fact, the disputes are, some would claim, much more tricky than other types of property right disputes, especially because we can't have those, you know, those bright line fences in between these ideas. So can you give uh, uh, an example of a of a time when one company or one inventor had a dispute with another and what happened as, as a result, just to make things more concrete. Yeah, absolutely. So a recent one that's been in the news quite a bit uh, are a, a series of kind of uh, claims and counterclaims going between Apple and Samsung. And so it turns out that the, that the, the IP behind the intellectual property or IP behind smartphones is fascinating. 
And the reason it's so fascinating is there are over 200,000 patents. So you look at your little smartphone, and this looks like reasonable technology based on computers, so there shouldn't be that much new. But there are over 200,000 marginal patents just on the smartphone. So this wow. is conditioning on the computer, yeah. And, and they keep coming out with more and more every year. And so given all of that, there's a, there's a ton of disagreement on who owns what within the smartphone space. And of course, the stakes are huge. Right? As more is done on smartphones, we move to that technology. And tablets have actually a very similar technology, much more similar in the patent space, funny enough, the, than to computers. Um, this battle is becoming uh, even more important. And so anyway, you have Apple and Samsung essentially suing and countersuing constantly based on these smartphones. And so, uh, and so what's happened is that Apple has sued Samsung claiming that, they, that they've infringed on Apple's initial patents because the iPhone was a bit earlier than a lot of these Android products. Samsung is countersued and the court decisions have gone back and forth, which has been really fascinating about this case. And so, so judges have ruled in Apple's favor. And then you'll see there's even been stock price jumps in Apple. And then, uh, they'll, of course, Samsung will appeal and they'll countersue. And then other judges have ruled in Samsung's favor. And then Apple has countersued and appealed. And so it's unclear who will eventually win these cases. Got it. And it will get these damages. But, but that's a very hotly debated area right now. So how do economists think about whether all this litigation activity is efficient or not. So what is the current state of the research? So first of all, there are two different types of, or you know, classical types of litigation in this space. Um, sort of historically, a lot of the litigation has been back and forth between practicing companies, like in the Apple-Samsung example that Lauren just gave. Um, of late, and there's been a rise uh, now in different forms of companies that are just patent aggregators. So companies that collect patents uh, and don't actually produce commercial products, they're just invested in the business of litigation. Uh, and then there's a, another set of players in this market, incidentally, who are you know, small inventors who, in one fashion or another, invented some, uh, you know, some product or component. And they themselves you know, also bring litigation uh, against companies that, you know, that they perceive to be infringing on their intellectual property. Um, you know, backed by law firms, often through contingent fee arrangements and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, and so Andre, uh, I, if you could show this during the podcast and you put this together, that'd be great. I think it's figure one in our paper. Yep. And do we show the time series of, of IP litigation? And okay. there's massive, this is in the patent trolls paper, and there's a massive spike. And so you see it recently, probably in the last 15 years, it's kind of going on a fairly stable line. And then you see this gigantic spike. And that entire spike is driven by the class that Scott mentioned of these non-practicing entities. So this is not the Apples versus Samsung. This is the, these NPEs, which are usually groups of lawyers uh, that end up just amassing patents, not to produce anything, but to sue other firms. Yes. So that, these are the colloquially known as patent trolls. Yes. Yeah, the patent trolls. And although so, to be, well, although to be clear, we prefer – so they're often – you know. There, there are different definitions of patent troll floating around in, in the discussion, both within the policy and within the research literature. Um, frequently, you know, these non-practicing entities are called uh, patent trolls. Sometimes people refer to sort of anybody who's trying to make money off of their patents as a troll in some fashion because they view sort of all, all of this litigation as holding up innovation. We prefer to define patent trolling as a behavior. You know, it's a specific form of litigation, and it's, it's not tied to any individual organizational form. Um, to us, patent trolling is about, you know, 
chasing cash um, independent of you know sort of the underlying quality of the uh, underlying quality of the lawsuit. Yeah, and so and what we're gonna what we're gonna get to, and we'll talk about this quite a bit, is we're gonna show that on average, it, that's what these NPs look like they're doing. And so there's going to be heterogeneity, and I think very interesting heterogeneity amongst those non-practicing entities, like Scott mentioned. But on average, that's what these MPs are doing. And getting back to that figure, essentially 100% of this gigantic and almost exponential spike in IP litigation is driven by these MPs. Yep. Got it. But uh, let's just actually take a step back a little bit and say, so there are, there are two things that these non-practicing entities could be doing. And, and one of them is actually productive, which is creating a market for uh, these small uh, inventors to sell their patents and monetize that even if they don't have access to the capital in order to uh, enforce those patents themselves, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And not only that, look, there, there are lots of reasons to think that the, that the non-practicing entities, ex ante, are doing a huge service to society and to innovation. Right. I mean, we could think, as they often put forward, and as there are there are both anecdotal and legitimate accounts of some of these large practicing entities essentially use their size and their the, their legal resources to essentially squash small innovators, to infringe on their patents and squash small innovators. And so these NPEs are coming in and giving the rents that these small innovators earn back to them. Right. When otherwise there was no way for them to get them or to finance this in any sensible way. And even if you think that that's not true. There could, there could still be a role for MPEs and an efficiency role in an economy if there are some economies of scale of litigation, right? which there likely are. So instead of each innovator hiring their own lawyer, amassing these patents that are going to be litigated into one organization could realize these economies of scale. So in that sense, these, these are all great reasons why ex ante these MPEs may be great for innovation in society. Now, unfortunately, there's another potential role for them, which is that, like Scott mentioned, they might just be opportunistic lawyers that are trying to exploit an equally, you know, uh, illegitimate or mistakes of the legal system in their own favors. And so that's what we find on average, is that on average, this is what they're doing. But that doesn't say that every case, this is what's going on. Got it. So how do you actually measure when that when that's happening versus the other use cases? So what you'd like to be able to do is measure the underlying lawsuits and like actually explicitly measure whether infringement had occurred. Um, but for a bunch of reasons, you can't actually do that. Um, you know, among other things, we, we you know, this is a, a hard thing to define in the first place. But we also just can't observe it from the from the data. Um, so instead, what we do is we look in, we look at the determinants of non-practicing entity litigation and compare them. We both sort of look at them uh, as uh, prima facie, and then compare them to other forms of litigation. So both practicing entity on practicing entity lawsuits, and then other forms of litigation like contracts and torts and so forth. Um, so first of all, uh, what do we find? So the non-practicing entities are predominantly driven by cash. So the, uh, the, the strongest first-order determinant of non-practicing entity intellectual property litigation is the cash holdings or you know recent cash shocks of the, tar- the firms they're targeting. Uh, they are even targeting cash if it seems to be sort of unrelated to the alleged infringement. So it effectively doesn't matter. You know, we can look at firms that um, have multiple different business segments and have to report cash flows for each of them. And it effectively doesn't matter uh, with regards, you know, for targeting, whether the cash comes from the segment they're targeting or, uh, you know, the segment or some other segment in the business. So in particular, it could be the case that the NPE chooses to target your technology segment, even though all of your business, you know, all of your cash flow is coming in from other parts of the business. And so it's very hard to think of this as representing sort of, you know, 
litigating against profitable infringement, right? Even if there were infringement going on there, you know, it, it, that segment is not making any money. Um, and again, as I said, the coefficient, you know, the, the impact of unrelated profits on targeting is exactly the same as the, uh, the impact of pr related profits. Got it. So it very much seems like a, a mafia model of, uh, of rent extraction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and meanwhile, so if you go instead to look at, you know, practicing entity on practicing entity litigation, you might think that cash targeting is just sort of a feature of litigation, right? If you're going to, you know, go and sue somebody, uh, you know, you certainly want them to be able to pay up. So it's not surprising that you should be like, you know, preferring to sue people with cash. But it turns out that cash is neither a first order determinant of practicing entity on practicing entity intellectual property litigation, nor of any of these other litigation forms we look at. So contract, tort, environmental, securities. And so to us, this is sort of like, you know, a, a dog in the nighttime, not barking type scenario, right? You know, sort of the first order determinant of non-practicing entity intellectual property litigation is cash. And that's not the first order determinant of any of these other forms of yeah. litigation. And, and just like, you know, and just like in IP, in those other cases, we can't measure explicitly whether there was a contractual violation or a tort feasance or something of the sort. But here, you know, it makes sense to think that the first order determinant is exactly that unobserved thing, you know, whether there was a, you know, a breach of contract in the case. Yeah. And so to be, to be clear, let me just kind of make that a little bit stronger because statistically it is a little bit stronger. Cash is not even a significant predictor of litigation in any of these other targeting cases. And even the sign flips around. The point is controlling for other determinants. I mean, so what it seems like, which may not be surprising, but then again is surprising in contrast to these MPEs, is that when you fire an, when you file an environmental suit against somebody, they had to pollute in order for you to do that. And that's the first order determinant. When you file a labor suit, they had to do something dicey in terms of labor or product or labor or product liability. But yet in these cases, all these firms seem to be doing is making money. Interesting. So what has uh, the response of these firms been to your research? So yeah, you know, this is funny. Unlike any other research I've had, this has generated more of a bifurcated response and I've gotten more hate mail from this paper than from any other paper. <laughs> and so we've gotten it. It's, it's funny, you know, from the, from the firms that have gone through this and some, you know, Scott and I both teach here at Harvard. And so from some HBS grads, we've heard back that that thank you so much for writing this paper. This is exactly what happened to us. And they've gone through and said, look, we were a struggling startup in technology and we just got buried by these MPEs and we had to shut down the entire business. So we're glad someone is now bringing this to the fore. And on the other hand, we've gotten emails and I'm happy to be open about this. They've been mostly from lawyers and MPEs and they've said, I can't believe you've written this paper. How dishonest of you to write them. It's amazing <laughs> the amount of... Uh, the amount of volatility we've gotten. So we've gotten both tails in terms of these emails. But nobody's presented empirical evidence that goes strongly against the conclusions we found. And in fact, to the extent that there is, you know, concordant empirical evidence, it, yeah. it supports our findings. Uh, so there's some work by Catherine Tucker at, over at MIT, um, Roger Smeets, and then some work by a, a number of different groups of lawyers, um, all of which in, you know, one fashion or another seems to be showing that non-practicing entities uh, on average, are having some form of negative impact on innovation, um, and to some extent also technology adoption. And meanwhile, that they seem to, you know, uh, there seem to be a sort of a lot of problems with their lawsuits. So there's evidence that, you know, conditional on going through trial, they lose more often, and uh, they're more likely to have their patents invalidated, things like that. Yeah. And look, this is something that the uh, that the that the United States Patent and Trademark Office, they're on the, they've got their thumb on this issue. They care about this quite a bit. And we've been honored to take part in a couple of discussions, and they've invited us down to present the paper to think more deeply about this. So this is something they're absolutely thinking about uh, in, in a, a fair amount of detail.
Got it. And, well, along with, and I should mention also, I guess, since we're uh, talking about the USPTO, and, and, and I'm happy to take more questions on this, legislatively, this is something that's also kind of on the tips of legislators' tongues. They just can't seem to get it out of their mouths. So there have been, there've been at least 12 bills which have been introduced into Congress to try to, to pass something to, to help this space, this innovation space a little bit, and yet none of them have passed. Wow, that's interesting. What, what is the reason why they haven't passed? They, so there's, so I can tell you the reason that I've heard. So we've talked to some lawyers about this and, and legal academics about this. And what they've said is just that both sides essentially have a vested interest in the legislature, which is kind of equal and balanced, and they're both very well funded. And so both have lobbied the right legislators enough to kind of gum up the system so kind of nothing has happened. So it's just uh, gridlock. Yeah, so it's gridlock. Uh, and just, so, just and, out of curiosity, who's, who is the side that's uh, – anti these non-practicing entities like who who has uh, who's interested in reducing these uh, frivolous uh, lawsuits oh so this is you should think about this as the both big firms because they're hit by them so these are google apple microsoft they're hit by by tens hundreds the the actually the most sued firm by mpes is samsung um and so it's these kind of big technology firms and also on the pharma side we see a lot of it there uh and these are now lobbying groups that support small firms because the other kind of – and they get a little less play just because I think they have less lobbying dollars. Mm -hmm. But these small startups like the HBS startup I mentioned, they're also really impacted by these MPEs and so they're very anti-MPE. Okay. So uh, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is do you, do you actually find any evidence that these non-practicing entities have an effect on – the rate of innovation. So, you know, what we care about as economists in, in the big picture is, uh, is is research moving forward, is technology moving forward? So is this having a negative effect on that? Uh, yeah, for sure. So we find that non-practicing entity litigation has a real negative impact on innovation at targeted firms. Uh, in particular, there's a significant reduction in research and development spending relative to an ex-ante identical firm after you lose to a non-practicing entity. Um, what is the order of 30%? Yeah. Yeah. So they reduce uh, research and development uh, by about 30%. And we don't know the mechanism for this. So there are you know, several different plausible stories about what's going on. It could be that you just took a huge cash hit, so you don't have the ability to spend it on R&D anymore. You have to do other sort of stabilization things. It could be you took a huge time hit, right? So going through the process of litigation and discovery is really costly in terms of time as well. Um, another hypothesis that's been brought up and, and certainly seems to occur in some cases is you know, once you've been hit once, you're sort of an, an easy target, and so you might shift your you might be forced to shift your business model or your you know research strategy um, away from you know your your mainline intended purpose to avoid repeat litigation. And then there's the the human capital piece. Right? Yeah, I mean, if you have your scientists there and they see you being hit by all this litigation and affecting funding, then they may hit the road, right? They may want to go to a competitor where that doesn't have these issues, where they're not as worried about funding for their research. Uh, that all makes sense. Uh, that sounds pretty terrible for the companies that are getting hit, hit by these lawsuits. Yeah, uh, and so and, and incidentally, again, this is true sort of in, in a number of different empirical studies that have tried either through surveys or through other methods to get a hold of exactly what's going on. So, um, you know, Catherine Tucker, you know, whom I mentioned earlier, has uh, shown that the uh, the impact of non-practicing any litigation includes sort of, you know, reductions in technology uh, adoption because the people designing the technology stop working while you know working on it while waiting to hear out the litigation um, and so you can get these sort of 
you know, reductions in productivity uh, entirely sort of for the duration of the litigation period, which then, you know, stopped the adoption of useful and uh, in her in the case she studies life-saving medical imaging technology. Um, it also makes it harder to get venture capital funding um, or other forms of financial support because, you know, you, you, you look likely to be a company in danger if you're currently facing ongoing patent litigation. Uh, and a number of, you know, different surveys which have been conducted by, uh, by mostly legal scholars and some innovation scholars show this as well. And so um, if you don't mind, can we just kind of paint the picture of this? Because I think it'll be good for people to get a feeling for what the, who these MPEs are. Or like yeah, of, of course. Go for it. Um, that'd be great. So, so like we mentioned before, look, most of these MPEs are groups of lawyers. And these are patent lawyers who essentially then amass these patents and then use them to file suits. And what's interesting about them is the, the prototype that we're finding of this opportunistic NPE, so we'll call the patent trolls, like you mentioned before, these are large patent aggregators. Okay, so these are firms that mass lots of patents to litigate. These are, are firms that tend, this is, and this is the really interesting part when you see them do this, they tend to target older patents. So you can think about, they, uh, they essentially buy patents that are, you know, we said they're about 20 years on average. So think of a firm that like buys a bunch of patents that are 18 and a half years in, so they only have a year and a half left. They buy them and they just start suing based on those patents. And, and what is the reason for purchasing the older ones? Are they cheaper? Yeah, they're cheaper. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's the whole idea is that the, the, you get more bang for your buck when you try to go on the, the secondary market and buy these. And so, again, all these patterns we're talking about, they don't exist for the PEs, right? PEs don't sue on older patents at all. So things like patent age is a, is a main determinant of these NPE suits. And the third one, which we think is, uh, is really fascinating, is the forum shopping that's going on. And so there's a, a large percentage of cases, the plurality of these cases, it's on the order of like 30 to 40 percent take place in a single district court in the east God, in an eastern district in Texas, in one small little town called Marshall, Texas. And what so, is the reason for that? Yeah, and so that's a very good question. So there have been papers written on exactly this. And so, look, if you expect these to be, we might expect that these are correlated with innovation itself, right? And so you do see lots of cases in California, because we think of that as a hotbed of innovation and where the patents are, and that's probably not surprising. Marshall, Texas, on the other hand, is not known as a hotbed of innovation. And yet, if this, 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 county of like 25,000 people, and yet we see a huge number of cases. So this level of forum shopping has been hypothesized to occur for a couple of reasons. So first, they're incredibly, uh, they're incredibly plaintiff friendly here. Okay, so the person bringing the case, mm -hmm. um, who's claiming infringement. And so these are juries of people who essentially um, seem to rule in favor of these NPEs more often than anywhere else. They also have judges who get done with these cases pretty quickly. And that's partly statutory for statutory reasons, that they pass some laws, which make sure that they clear their dockets quickly. Um, but also these judges just seem to rule on these cases much more quickly. So you have people that will rule quickly and rule in your favor more often. And that's kind of, that's this recipe, which has, which has kind of given the incentive of MPEs, and they follow this, to locate in Marshall, Texas. So if you see, there are entire buildings in downtown Marshall. We've used Google Maps to, to do this. There are entire buildings there that are populated completely by MPEs. And by populated, I mean they're completely empty because the MPEs just get a P.O. box there so they can be officially located there, but they're actually located somewhere in California or Texas or like Dallas or somewhere else. 
but they have PO boxes. So these are these empty buildings. If you were to go through, you'd knock on all the doors. No one would be there, and yet they want to be located there. So their patents are located there, and they can sue based on that. Wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> and, and, and so, and the great part of this is, and Andre, you'll appreciate this, and we did too, is that this gave me, this made my heart warm as a, as as being economists and supporting capitalism. So what's been the firm response to this? So like I mentioned, <laughs> Samsung is the most sued company. So how has Samsung responded to this fact that it gets sued so often and it's the most sued company in Marshall, Texas? Well, the Marshall Winter Festival is now not the Marshall Winter Festival. It's the Samsung Winter Festival. <laughs> they built, and I, I couldn't make this up, they built... The only outdoor ice skating rink in Texas is in Marshall, Texas, and it's the Samsung ice skating rink. I don't know if you've ever been to Texas or know what the weather's like, but my sister lives there. It's 1,000 degrees every day in Texas. <laughs> Building an outdoor ice skating rink is super hard, and yet Samsung did this. They sponsor scholarships, Samsung scholarships, and the, the main criteria to get one of these scholarships is that you have to be a high school student in Marshall, Texas. <laughs> It's amazing the amount of, of, of resources that they've now spent to try to essentially get the juries on their side. Interesting. And, it, and it's not that the judges are elected or are those elected as well? These federal circuit judges? I yeah. think they're appointed. Yeah. Okay. So you so. can't influence that in the same way. But yeah, the influencing the jury, that's, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, do you know if that, if that has happened in any other types of... Uh, Kind of non-patent, non-patent related issues. Okay. Yeah, uh, we don't know. It's a good question, but I, yeah, it's this. I think it's this confluence of the concentration of jury. Like you know exactly who you're trying to convince in, in these cases, and you're getting sued so often that it makes any dollar you spend the return on that investment quite high. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've we've talked about kind of uh, non-patent entities, uh, or sorry, non-practicing non entities, uh, but. Uh, I wanted to move a little more broadly and talk about other aspects of patent policy. So uh, one issue that has gotten a lot of play is uh, how broad patents can be. So um, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us something about uh, software patents and uh, wh whether they're legitimate or not or what the current state of research on that is, if you know. So, you know, so neither of us are lawyers, uh, so we can't sp speak to the exact legal structure of whether software patents are currently uh, overly currently overly broad um, or, or otherwise legal. However, you know there are a lot of patents on concepts through software that still remain out there, um, and you know sort of formally the Supreme Court has decided that you know sort of just pure implementation of an of an abstract idea is actually non patentable. But there remain a lot of patents that are, you know, that are pure implementations of abstract ideas, but that, you know, do not be, you know, you know when the Supreme Court decides, you know, you now can't patent this type of invention, the previous patents that were issued on that type of invention don't become immediately invalid. Um, they have to be, you know, repeat, you know, they have to be subsequently challenged and, and challenged individually. So, you know, for example, there's still a lot of software patents out there, you know, floating around. Um, and, you know, it's still possible to litigate on them. And so long as you don't get taken to court or challenged through what's called inter partes review, which is the um, a, a new procedure uh, at the Patent and Trademark Office for essentially sort of externally requested re-review of a patent, uh, you can continue to make money off of them. Uh, and lots of firms do this. So, uh, 
you know, one of the one of the fun stories we've been talking about a lot recently. There's a, a company called LumenView LLC that was litigating a patent on uh, the concept of dating and matchmaking via computer. Huh. And so they were going out and suing dating sites, right? You know, there are a lot of you know companies that you know practice the process of matchmaking via computer. Uh, even in you know wearing one of my other market design hats as a matching theorist, you know we we see a lot of this. Um, and so finally, a dating site took them to to court. Um, you know, they'd been settling with lots and lots and lots of companies um, for less than the cost of going to court. And one company finally put its foot down and said, you know, we're going we're to take you to court. And uh, went through this long and costly process in which the judge threw out the patent with great prejudice. You know, sort of, here is, uh, you know, there is no inventive idea here. You know, the process of matchmaking is literally ancient. Um, but there are lots of patents like that that still exist and that continue to be asserted. Um, it's presently the case that you, in principle, can't file a new one of them. Uh, you know, so you, you, it would be very hard today to patent the concept of matchmaking via computer. Um, but it's still the case that lots of people file patents that are, you know, sort of implementation plus, you know, implementation plus other stuff and try and roll the, the implementation of an idea in. Um, and, you know, and, and this is, you know, there, there are gray areas on both sides, right? You know, sort of there clearly are some, you know, deep innovations in software, but there's lots of instances where a software invention is really just the implementation process, not actually an invention. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear on our view on this, Andre. These things are dangerous. Patents are dangerous in the wrong hands uh, and it, it, uh, for lots of reasons. First, the cost of litigation is 500000 It's been estimated from anywhere from $500,000 to $2 million. And so the point is that 500000 to $2 million, that's a pretty great check to get written just for sending a demand letter and, and, and threatening to sue someone. And so the point is, you may think that this is an overly broad patent, right? You as the small company may be like, crap, we think this is overly broad, but we're going to have to pay 500 grand in order to figure this out. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of working capital for these small companies. And so if they're asking for a settlement of $50,000, $100,000, that's way cheaper, right? And so it's in your best interest to just pay these. It might be in your best interest to just pay these settlement fees, even if it is an overly broad patent. And the reason why... We don't, Scott, I don't think this solves the problem, and there's some evidence to support this, is, look, you don't need an overly broad patent. I can sue you for something that's an incredibly narrow patent, but just that you're not infringing on, and you still have to pay the same amount to show that I'm wrong. So, what, so can, what happens when the person that's bringing the suit uh, loses? Do they have to compensate the party that they sued so it, in any way? It's, it's, very, it's very rarely. It's incredibly hard to, especially because this is IP space, yep. it's incredibly hard to recover fees. And part of the policy debate is about that right now. So in principle, the judge can choose to award attorney's fees and can in fact choose to award a multiple of attorney fees, uh, you know, as a, as a penalty if they think the lawsuit was sort of, you know, grossly frivolous or something yeah. of the sort. Um, in practice, that happens very rarely. Um, and, you can, and you can see why, right? The, again, this intellectual property space is so amorphous. If it were the farmland, then, you, then the judge could say, you idiot, of course your farm is across town from this other farm. They, <laughs> That's a completely frivolous case. But here, you can make some weird twisted case that, oh, yeah, it's close enough that maybe we didn't. And so the judge has to has to think it's frivolous and be able to provide some evidence of frivolous where the NPEs are bringing in their own experts saying there was infringement. So it's actually very hard to get to that frivolous uh, bar, if you could say, or that benchmark. And so they very rarely award fees. 
Is it possible for these companies to hide what they're doing so that they can avoid being sued? Do we see any evidence of that? So instead of maybe filing their own patents, uh, keeping things as a trade secret? So we don't know. So we don't have great evidence on the extent to which companies are shielding themselves by just keeping their their production secrets. So you know, certainly a, a sufficiently early stage company can do that. Um, you know, at the point at which you're selling a commercial product or something of the sort, you you sort of become uh, you you become open to litigation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, if if the the intellectual the actual intellectual property overlap is fuzzy to begin with, you know, sort of a, a company can look at you and say, well, gosh, it looks like you know your your site involves dating, therefore it probably infringes on our patent yeah. on matchmaking. Yeah. Um, what the- we do find so the empirical evidence in a, in a separate paper we have called shielded innovation. We look at you know a, a very natural form of shielding, which is the extent to which innovation moves out of commercial spaces and into universities. So you know universities also do not you know sell commercial products to the extent that they do technology transfer. They do it through spinoffs and and, and spinoff subsidiaries. Um, and we find that in the uh, the industries that have a lot of non practicing entity litigation, there's actually a, a a massive increase in the university share of innovation downstream, or Sorry, university innovation, you know, over time, you know, five to 10 years out. So you get, uh, you know, about 100 NPE lawsuits in an industry ships up the university share of innovation by roughly 70%. Wow. And what are these industries typically? Um, You know, information technology. So a lot of it is, you know, sort of information technology spaces. And biosciences. um, And biosciences. And uh, I guess another strategy uh, that these companies might take is to... uh, also file a lot more patents as a, as a defense. So I guess for smaller companies, this might not be as much of a solution, but uh, you can imagine, and I've heard stories of this, for example, Google filing a ton of patents so that if someone sues them, then they can sue them back. I guess this doesn't work yeah, so, as well exactly. against non-practicing entities, but it does work against other companies. Correct. Yeah, so Andre, you've hit on it exactly. And so that's this kind of organizational superpower of MPEs is that if... When you know if Apple sues Samsung, then Samsung says, "Well, screw you. We're gonna we're gonna countersue," and that's always this credible threat against suit in the first place in these practicing entity versus practicing entity space. Mm-hmm. So mutually suits, assured destruction. Yeah, yeah, but that just doesn't exist for MPEs, right? Because they're by definition they're not commercializing anything, so they can't be countersued. Now would be the appropriate time to talk about what do you think would be the best solution to this? Uh, what 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 type of legislation should be passed in order to uh, reduce this this problem? So so let's actually start with what they're actually considering. Yeah. So what what's actually on the table right now mostly focuses around shifting the default rule for attorney fee shifting. So we talked a little bit earlier about this idea that it's very very uncommon for judges to award attorney fees to the in the case that the plaintiff loses, even when you've made it all the way through the case. Um, so in the current legislative proposal would suggest, uh, would shift the default. It would basically say the judge is, you know, automatically obligated to award attorney fees unless the judge finds the suit wasn't frivolous, um, or finds, you know, sort of, you know, economic hardship on the, the plaintiff. So if the plaintiff is a small adventure who can't actually afford to, to pay shifted attorney fees or something like that. Um, and even this, you know, so people are, are fighting very, very hard about. You know, this is a you know a huge policy debate, um, both you know, sort of within Congress and in the surrounding intellectual property community. Um, in practice, we think that actually doesn't do much to solve the problem, and the reason for that is that 
the vast majority of these lawsuits are settled. Uh, and there's and there's a huge amount of upfront cost on the defendants for discovery. So unlike other forms of litigation where most of the upfront costs are on the plaintiffs, here the upfront costs are on the defendants. And it's the case that, you know, again, you know, imagine you're a small firm. You know, even if you know you can get attorney fee shifting, you know, after, you know, a couple of years of protracted litigation, you still may be very unlikely to be able to uh, to go through with it. Either, you know, you're credit constrained or you're time constrained because you're a small company and you can't even handle the initial investment. Just as a clarification, so the attorney shift fee shifting is just the attorney fees. There are not any damages after afterwards right so you could you could even imagine that there were there's some amount of damage the default i uh, i believe is yeah, just the the fee shifting the um but you could even imagine that with you know with some sort of damage award so that would make it easier for defendants to go through but there's still lots of reasons why they may not be able to to go through at the beginning and there's a lot of uncertainty they're facing right so they don't actually know you know especially if they're going to a place like marshall texas for the lawsuit they don't actually know what their chances of winning are Sure. Um, and so what we think is that, you know, sort of a lot should be done to try and resolve some of that uncertainty up front. We like a form of uh, you know, sort of ex-ante screening, uh, whereby, you know, when you want to file a, uh, you know, a patent lawsuit, you know, as the plaintiff, now you have to go through some form of preliminary review, which is going to make just, you know, sort of very simple determinations. Um, so they're going to, uh, you know, look and see whether your patents appear to be valid under present law. So, you know... For example, a lot of these, you know, software type patents that are still floating out there. Um, and if they, they think your patents don't look like they are, you know, maybe they have the, the right to remand them for re-review. So, uh, or, or make, you know, advice on some sort of inter partes review or something like that of the Patent and Trademark Office. And the second thing is they're going to look for sort of, you know, just very, very coarse information on whether this looks like a, you know, a, a strong or, or, or frivolous lawsuit. And so they're going to say, you know, either, you know, yes, this looks like a reasonable lawsuit or, or you know, no, this is looks sort of ridiculous. You, you know, one of you know the, the patent is in the information technology space, and the company is a lumber company. You know, we don't really know how this came about. Um, and in either case, that information is just advisory. Uh, so it's it's used as as advice to the courts, although it could maybe be used to you know calibrate you know fee and penalty awards and things at the end of the lawsuit. Um, but provides a little bit of information that then firms, you know, defendants could use to, to go and seek financing to go through the court process, or in the case that, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the preliminary hearing finds, you know, in favor, you know, this looks like a great lawsuit, could actually help the plaintiffs. Like, think about these small inventors who have trouble getting funding to bring their lawsuits as well. It could actually help them obtain financing to go through the patent litigation process as well. Oh, interesting. And so we sort of think, like, you know, sort of having even, even very coarse sorting, just a little bit of information at the outset. Um, and again, shifting some of the cost burden onto the plaintiff rather than the, the defendant at the discovery stage, um, you know, we'll both screen out lawsuits because you'll get better ones being brought forward. And then the ones that really go forward will be sort of, you know, pre-sorted. Yeah. So, so, so who would do this screening? And so we, we have in mind the creation of a new board, like a patent review board, which has been done in some other areas of law that would essentially be the, this independent board, that their job would be to any lawsuit that's brought they would give one of these preliminary screenings. And again, it would be advisory, but it would be paid for. And look, we're, we're playing around with this. So we have, a, we have a working paper on this. And so we've solved it for both a payment that comes for the people, a payment that comes essentially the fee comes from the person suing. So this would be the small inventor or the NPE that sues uh, or the firm uh, and a fee that comes when you pay your patent. So think about it like an insurance fee. So essentially, this would go into the patent fees, and then this would just be something that you pay when you get your patent that would protect it in the future. 
look, we think that this, uh, this should be, in theory, everyone should want this, right? Because if the NPEs really are, if they're these small inventors or even the MPEs are bringing meritorious cases, then this is awesome because then they'll find in favor of the MPE and this may either lead to financing, obtaining financing easier, or maybe a settlement earlier on so the MPEs don't have to go through the trial. And, of course, the people being sued should want this too if they feel like they're not actually infringing. That and makes so sense. Both, yeah, both parties, if they have the right incentives, I guess, or if they're if they're suing for the right reasons or defending themselves for the right reasons, they should want this information. This has been a really interesting conversation, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. So much Our pleasure. Thanks for having us.